Well, good morning. For some of you that are starting to make your ways back from holidays all over the world, welcome back. It's good to see you. For those that have been here, it's always good to see you. And uh, we're just glad to be together as the family this morning. I want you to open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 5. And I must confess that back when I outlined this series, I wasn't going to preach this chapter. Uh, I just thought, oh, there's not enough time to get to everything. And then you go away for a few weeks and you keep reading and reading and you think, yeah, maybe, maybe we need to come back to this one. So if you would follow along in your Bibles, Nehemiah chapter 1, it's not going to be on the screen because I'd like you to listen. Um, and I'd like you to hear kind of what was going on with the people in the situation they were in. Now let me quickly remind you of what's gone on so far. Nehemiah's taken a long walk all the way back to Jerusalem. Uh, he has uh, gathered a team around him of faithful men and women to rebuild the wall, to fortify the city again. And in that process, they faced tremendous opposition, largely from two men and the teams they recruited to hurt the Jews, and that was Sanballat and Tobiah. And we, we talked about that opposition from outside last week. And, and we can all relate to those times when people come at us. Uh, if you're in this, the workplace, when coworkers attack you to try to jump over you in the corporate ladder, or this, that, or the other, uh, these things do happen. But what do you do, and how do you handle it when the attacks come from within? If, if we truly believe we are who we say we are in Christ Jesus, we are a family adopted as sons and daughters of him, the Most High God, correct? Yeah. You with me so far? Some of you are jet-lagged, and so just shake your head occasionally, and we're good. But if we're a family, shouldn't we look after one another? The answer to that would be yes. And from the beginning of the Israelite nation, that was the expectation. So much of what we call the, Leviticate or the uh, Levitical or the Leveret law, it's called those things, it's found in Leviticus, was to teach the people of Israel, God's chosen people, to be light in a dark world, how to live with one another and how to function, and then how to let the rest of the world see this is how it's supposed to be done. And that brings us to Nehemiah chapter 5. I'm not going to read the whole chapter today, uh, but I will read verses 1 through 14. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order, us, in order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we had, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to, sub- we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and vineyards don't belong to others. When I heard their outcry in these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are exacting usury from your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, 
as far as possible, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you're selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could not find anything to say. They could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let the exacting of usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, houses, and also the usury you are charging them, the hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine, and oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep this promise so may such a man be shaken out and be emptied. Lord, as we look into your word today, I ask that you would open our hearts, that you would teach us, that my words would be few, and that you would not be hidden from us, Lord. May we focus on you. Hallowed be your name, we pray. Amen. A few years ago, a movie came out called Pay It Forward. I don't know if any of you have seen that movie. It's a brilliantly fun and challenging and convicting movie in a lot of ways. It centers around an 11-year-old, 7th grade, if you're in the American school system, grade 7, so year 6. I can't keep it all straight. Form form 1, thank you. Uh, Anyway, 11 years old. And his teacher, his social studies teacher, Kevin Spacey, challenges the class. He writes it on the board. He said, I want you to think of one thing, one idea that could change the world. And then he tells the class, get to working on it. And this 11-year-old boy, Trevor, comes back later on and begins to draw on the school board, on the chalkboard, marker board, whatever we use here. And he drew a circle with him in the middle. And then he drew three lines. And three more circles with three more stick figures in the middle. So you had a total of four people. And Trevor looked at his class and he said, I am one person. I am going to find three people that need help. Not just easy things, something hard that they cannot do on their own. And he said, and I am going to do that for them. I'm going to do that three times. He said, then it's my hope that each one of those three people will then do the same thing. And he says, they will pay it forward. They will then help three other people. And he said, and I believe we can change the world. And, and so you get this motivational speech from an 11-year-old kid. And you're wondering, can we, uh, can we turn the computer on? And uh, you get this great speech from the the boy and the kids say, well, that's just stupid or that's hard or it's not going to be possible or it's not going to work out. And the teacher who also challenges the students to learn healthy vocabulary and whatnot, that's okay, don't worry about it. Uh, He challenges them in this way to learn. And he says, what you're describing is is kind of a utopian society, right? And the 11-year-old didn't know what a utopian society was. And he said, what do you mean, like perfect? And the teacher smiled and he said, yeah. And he said, well, I guess. Why not? In the Old Testament, 
when God placed things in perspective for the people of Israel, he did it in such a way that they were to be looking after one another. They were to be living harmoniously, one with each other, thinking of others ahead of themselves. There were great steps taken to ensure the people were looked after and that God's people modeled what it looked like to live in the world in which they were called. Unfortunately, when we get to the time and place that we find ourselves now. Nehemiah has been appointed as governor of the land. The people are acting. They are rebuilding the walls. So on this one hand, we see God amazingly at work, proving to be victorious by his own strength, not the strength of any man, but by the strength of the Lord, victorious over opposition from outside. And at the same time, we find out there's been a famine. And on top of that, there's been taxes that have been high. And on top of that, the people of Jerusalem have had to sell their children into slavery to pay their debts. And on top of that, there's been extortion. Land that was theirs, others that were, excuse me, rich and wealthy were saying, I will buy your land and you'll come have to work for me and you'll be my slave. They were extorting the very land they were to be taken care of together. In other words, in what we talk about today, the rich were getting richer and the poor were getting poor. Economics 101 says we had a wealth gap. The, the divide was getting greater because a certain few were looking after themselves. Instead of thinking, how can I meet a need, they were thinking of themselves, and people were going hungry. People were suffering. People were in great need, and they didn't have an answer. When that happens, history tells us time and again a couple of things will follow. Historically speaking, when there is enough challenge, people will revolt. Also, when we see that people's needs aren't being met, they can often band together and complain loudly. We do it here by via protest. We like our protests and our marches in Hong Kong. I like reading the newspapers each weekend to find out who complained about what through walking from Wan Chai to Central this week. Because they happen every week, right? There's always something to complain about. Now, this message isn't meant to be a message saying to us as the church all the things we're doing wrong. It's meant to be a message to invite us into an opportunity to what God has called us to do right in his strength. Because what happens is sometimes we can look and identify and say, oh, that's a problem. Whether it's universal suffrage that we complain about or the wages or this, that or the other or unfair treatment, whatever the issue may or may not be, we can get so caught up in the circumstance that we lose sight of the bigger picture. And we, want to, we don't want to risk doing that. The big picture in this case was there was a very real need. And those that had the means to do something about it were keeping it for themselves. It was that simple. There was a great need. There was an outcry. If you, if you hang out with me, I would say there was probably weeping and gnashing of teeth. People were suffering. There were needs right in front of other Jews. And notice, if you read throughout chapter 5 of Nehemiah... The family aspect is not hidden here because time and again in this passage, what do you see? Nehemiah keeps saying, our brothers, our brothers, our brothers. They were doing it 
It wasn't the Gentiles. It wasn't those outside the city wall. It was themselves, their very family, the Jews that were right there together. And they were hurting one another. They weren't looking after each other. Sometimes the church gets a a reputation of not being a very good testimony. Sometimes people on the outside of a church can say, well, if that's how people treat each other, why would I want anything to do with their God? And that was the question Nehemiah was going to wrestle with with the people here in this situation. So we find ourselves in verse 5 where they've said, this is what they said, they said, although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen and our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. I cannot imagine the depth of the need that would ever present itself where I would have to sell either of my two girls or my son into slavery. That just, that's a terrifying thought. Pause for a moment and think of that. This is a very nation that has been enslaved time and again and has been moved. And God has finally begun to bring them back. Only that at the hands of their countrymen, at the hands of their brothers, who they should be on equal footing with, they're having to sell them back into slavery. What kind of theology does that tell us about these people? It says to me that their material possessions, their wealth, their status, their success here was of far greater significance than obedience to the law and obedience to the will of God and in their obedience to loving their neighbor as themselves, which isn't just a New Testament concept as we've talked about before. What about us today? What do we do? How do we see that? Well, you see all over the city great need. You see tremendous wealth gap here in a city like Hong Kong. You hear me joke about the fact that I wholeheartedly believe there are more Ferraris in Hong Kong than Fords. There is tremendous wealth. There is also tremendous wisdom among many people. There is also tremendous compassion among others. There is also tremendous abilities among others. And I'm just talking about the church. Just us, just right here in this room. But yet what happens is if we're not careful, we get very singularly focused. And we should be singularly focused, but we get it wrong. We tend to think about the path right in front of us that's just for us. And it's called that narrow focus on our situation, on our circumstance. When instead we could look to the left or the right and ask that wonderful question, How are you really doing? And then the follow-up, how can I help? It takes time. It takes energy and it takes investment. And it takes the Spirit of the Lord to guide us to what we should do. But Nehemiah, when he came to this point, he heard the outcry. When I heard their outcry, verse 6, and these charges, I was angry. Now, I thought Christians aren't supposed to get mad, right? Sure. We're, to, we're told to be, in your anger, do not sin, right? Yeah, well, that kind of sounds like... I'm, I'm leading you into a trap, by the way. Just know it's coming. We should be slow to anger. But you see, the thing is, Nehemiah was angry at sin. 
And maybe in our church, we've gotten a little too comfortable with sin. Maybe in our church, we've gotten a little too comfortable with comfort. And Nehemiah saw the outcry of the people in their great need, and it made him mad, as it should have. Why weren't more people upset? Because you know what happens in anger? We often act. Now, do we always act well? No. I have to tell you a story that was painfully real. You know the Holy Spirit's working in your life uh, sometimes when he gives you opportunities to practice that which you're about to preach, and it can be a painful learning experience. I have been in the process of trying to get a repair done on a certain uh, possession of my own that's taken now 18 months for what should have been a fairly simple thing. Well, on Friday, I was told again that it was going to be 10 more days. It's been a long time coming of this, and I, I kept my temper. They were quite angry, and they were not loving, gentle, or meek. And I was very firm. And in the eyes of man, and even a couple people I told this story to afterward, they said, you had every right to say what you said. And they were right. I did. I had every right to go with that man. I could have yelled and screamed and stomped and done everything. But it would have done no good. But toward the end of the conversation, the Holy Spirit didn't just subtly get in my head. He kicked me. And I was so convicted by just one word because the man that I was talking to said, I'm sad. I want to help you. And I thought, here I am speaking in words that are harsh and fair but not right. And I'm just making the problem worse. I could be treating him with gentleness, with respect, with love and trying to help him make this better. And instead, I'm saying it's not fair and it's about me. And I was convicted to the core. I said, you know what? And, and my friend, I now call him a friend. I, I, I stopped on the phone and I said, you know what? I was wrong. I said, I spoke to you in a manner that was not helpful. And I was mean and I was angry. And I am sorry for that. And I had to do it right away. I couldn't wait. There was no room for me to wait and come back later. And then just to make sure there was no confusion, I WhatsApped him, texted him. The same thing, because I wanted him to know that it was me that was wrong. Yes, he's been wrong about a hundred other times. But that's not the point. The point was my behavior and my action toward him. And the amazing thing was I had to call him back the next day to ask a follow-up question. And all he could do was say, Thank you for helping me. He said, it was me that was wrong. And I said, no, that's not the point. I wasn't apologizing for that. And it's not about me. It's you deserve to be treated with love. And he just, he was just such a different man. And it reminded me of how often we get caught thinking, especially of those that help us, that are there just doing the best they can, and yet we treat them as property or we can treat them with anything but respect or dignity. And I had caught myself in a very simple way not treating one that was trying his best, I think, I hope. And I treated him as lower than myself. And that was so wrong. But God gave me the opportunity to practice the ministry of reconciliation. And he said at the end, he said, you know, you're my friend. And he said, I want to help with this. And I said, I know. Do the best you can. We'll figure it out. And that was it. In the same way, I was so hurt that night because I knew I had an opportunity to be light and I'd missed it. God gave me a second chance and His grace is sufficient and I was so thankful. 
But so often we don't miss the opportunities that are right in front of us. Or we get so caught up in treating the situation with fairness that we don't actually put one's needs ahead of our own. We don't actually look to the other person ahead of ourselves, of what we want, of what we think. And I had done that, and I was so wrong, and it was over a stupid thing. And I was so thankful the Lord convicted me, and the man was gracious enough to learn with me and grow together, and I count him as a friend. And I was blessed, and I pray he is and will continue to be. But Nehemiah, when he saw it, he was wiser than me. He's holier than me. He didn't speak first. When he got angry, do you read what he did next? I pondered them in my mind. Okay? I want, I want to tell you what, that, what that's like. If you ponder it in your mind, it usually means you're not talking first. It usually means you've stepped back, doesn't it? Like I said, I got angry and I spoke and I didn't speak loudly. I didn't do that, but I was mad. And what I could have done is just stepped back and listened. That's what Nehemiah did. He collected his thoughts. I love how the King James Version says it. He consulted with himself. There's one person in our often that's known to solve problems by talking to themselves. I'm not going to say who, so don't go guessing which one of us it is, but they know. And it's funny because you'll hear them talking and, and we'll all say, huh? And they'll say, oh, it's just, I'm just figuring this out. And sure enough, about two minutes later, the, they have consulted with themselves and the problem is fixed. Sometimes we need that. We step back for a second. And I don't think that Nehemiah didn't just talk to himself here. I believe far more Nehemiah stopped and said, Lord, guide my words. Lord, speak. And based on what I can read of Nehemiah, i got to think, because he is a man of prayer, we see that time and again. In some way, shape, or form, he asked the Lord to speak through him. Because what came next was then the accusation. He thought carefully, and he confronted the problem. He did it by calling a meeting and laying out the reality right in front of those nobles that had done the act. They had treated their fellow brothers with contempt. They had not taken care like they should. And so I continued, he says, well, you're, you're exacting usury from your own countrymen. What is usury? It's kind of a confusing word, and it's, it's well outdated. But what usury essentially was, was it's abusing the system. Because Jews were allowed to loan money to other Jews. What they were not allowed to do was charge interest on that loan. Okay? Now, and, and you see in the, the, the code of Hammurabi, if it was a foreigner, you could charge them interest. But really, that was for a separate act. So you couldn't have any stand of which to go by to say the Jews were right in charging interest of one another. And in doing so, they placed a heavier, harder, more just completely destructive burden on the people that were already taxed by the government that had taken control of them. So they already had one set of taxes, and now to pay those taxes, they were having to take out loans, and to further it, the fellow brothers and sisters of Jerusalem were profiting off of their suffering. 
That's not right. Deuteronomy 23 tells us you're not allowed to do that. But they did it anyway. The whole point of the Jewish year of Jubilee, which these people should have known well, was to eliminate the wealth gap. It was to release the debt, release those from the hard expenses of being poor and getting a new chance and helping one another and giving God the glory for how he takes care of his people. And instead, a few looked around at a business opportunity and said, I can make some money off of this. Doesn't sound so bad. It's not bad to make a little extra money on the side. But it was when it was at the expense of brothers and sisters. And it was not right. And Nehemiah looked at his people And in the words of an old, old comic, I don't know if any of you have ever heard of the comic Pogo, uh, he said, we have seen the enemy, and the enemy is us. Can you imagine your leader coming in to talk to you, the the nobles, the, the, the big men on campus, you might say, and he looks and he said, you got it all wrong. I mean, listen to his words. You are exacting usury. I called a large meeting to deal with them. And as far as possible, we've brought, bought back the Jews, brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you're selling them back. And then I continued, what you're doing isn't right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? Talk about a loaded accusation. First, you aren't fearing God. You're not obeying. You're not doing what you know to be right. Second, even the Gentiles see it and it's reproachable to them. Even they know better. Now, remember who the Jews are. They are to be God's chosen people at this point in time, to be light, to point other people to him. By Nehemiah saying they are approach even to Gentiles, what's happening is, well, they're failing on numerous levels. And even the outside world knows that. Back to my point earlier of what sometimes churches can be accused of. Well, if that's how you treat one another, why would we want anything to do with your God? The people of Jerusalem, the Jews there, had an opportunity. They were confronted with the reality of the situation. There was no hiding from the fact that they had been wrong. They had treated people without the dignity that God had taught them to. They had treated people and taken advantage of them for selfish gain. They were not considering themselves to be one people. Instead, they were letting the rich get richer and the poor suffer harder to the point where that outcry is one of hopelessness. What else can we do? We've sold our land. We've sold our kids. We have nothing else. Remember, I said this message isn't just about a criticism, but it's about an opportunity. Well, when confronted with the reality of the situation, something interesting happened. The Jews got together and defended themselves and thought, we have every right to make money. 
Just because they're not as smart as us or as good at business or with their finances as we are, we're going to make money off of them. That's fair. That's called capitalism, right? I don't think you find that in Nehemiah 5. Unless you're reading a very different translation than mine. They didn't espouse all that is great of free trade. They didn't espouse all that is great of a world's base. The, Hong Kong, we're the world's freest economy. No. You know what they said? They said, well, Nehemiah told him. He called him. He let him have it. He said, give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, houses, and also the usury you are charging them. Give it all back. Every penny you've made on them, give back. Everything. All of it. New wine, oil, grain, all of it. Feed the people. Take care of the people. Do things the right way. Look after them. Verse 12. Nah, Nehemiah, that's really hard. I've already invested that money. I've already used that to build my personal kingdom. I've got this land development over here that I need. I've got a flat in East Jerusalem that needs some renovation. Sorry, the money's, it's, it's not liquid right now. I can't give it back. It's too uncomfortable for me, Nehemiah. It, it might be expensive and... It's, I, I just, I don't think now's a good time. Uh, Nehemiah, you know, you make sense, but be realistic. The world we're living in right now, we got to make money somehow, right? These are all... Sadly, very common arguments to a simple problem. And not one of those arguments was one that people made to Nehemiah. Now, you know what they said? We will give it back. And we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Wow. We talk about repentance often in in a Christian church. And repentance is that that act of both asking forgiveness and seeking restoration and going the other direction, away from the sin which we have committed. You see repentance here, powerfully. You don't hear them flat out say, we were wrong, but it's written all over the text. They were confronted with their action, and they said, we were wrong. We'll fix it. It reminds me of a wee little man in the New Testament named Zacchaeus. You remember that story? He was a tax collector. He took a lot from a lot of people. He met Jesus. Jesus had food with him. Jesus loved to eat with sinners. He loved to eat with people that might have made the church uncomfortable. And he was okay with that. Would we? Just as a side note. And when they're there, Zacchaeus, you come down from there. I'm going to your house today. And in the process, what do we learn about him? He gave it all back. Exponentially. He said, it's all yours. The people of Israel, Nehemiah invited the priests together and they made an oath before the Lord that it would be written, that it was put down, basically in stone, that they would do what they promised. And he said, let you be shaken away from God. Look at what he says when they make their oath. In this way, may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep this promise. 
so may such a man be shaken out and emptied. Wow, there's a visual picture there. He shakes. I don't have a robe on. I don't wear robes. Sorry. But if you just shake it out and you imagine everything falling off, he said, if you don't do this, if you don't do what you've promised, may God shake you out. In the New Testament, we're told that our treasures are to be in heaven. That material positions here are of little significance in comparison to the greatness of God and the eternal treasure. And I come back to pay it forward, and I think about that one little 11-year-old. I don't know where the concept came from, but he figured if he could help three people, and those three people would help three more. And Jim Caviezel, the homeless guy in the movie, starts figuring it out and says, I'm not very good at math, but that sounds like 27. That's how far down the list he'd gotten. And it, it continued to progress. It made me think about a church today because... Right in front of the people of Judah, the Jews living in Jerusalem was a real need. They had been wrong. They had fallen short. They had broken the law. All things you and I have done. That wasn't the end of it. They didn't just wail and say, woe is me. I'm terrible at life. They did something about it. They turned And they went the other way, and they began to help their brother and sister in need. And the wall continued to be built, and things continued to progress. I love the song that I think Nehemiah was a living testimony of. If you're on my Twitter feed, you saw it this morning. Make me a servant, humble and meek. Lord, let me lift up those who are weak. And may the prayer of my heart always be, make me a servant today. You see, the reason I bring that up is because Nehemiah didn't just ask the other people to do it. He didn't just look at them and say, you do it right there. This is on you. You take better care of your helper. You take better care of your staff. You take better care of your employer. You take better care of your parents, whomever. You take care of your neighbor. No, it wasn't just accusational. It was, we are in this together. Because when you get onward of verse 14, you get 14 through 19, and Nehemiah begins to tell us a little bit about himself, that he took no money that was raised from the taxes that was put on the people. And he fed the people over 150 a day out of his own expense. That's a lot of people. And remember, they were hungry, so they probably ate a lot. And he fed that out of his own expense. We are in this together, seems to be Nehemiah's indication. He was leading by example as he invited the people of Judah, of Jerusalem, to act right now, not wait. Get involved and meet the needs. What do we do with a story like that? As the Jews and officials ate at Nehemiah's table, he prayed this prayer. Remember me with favor, oh my God, for all, I've, for all I have done for these people. He did everything he did out of the fear of the Lord. When we are transformed by the work of Christ in our lives, if we call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ, if we call ourselves disciples, Christians, if you will, 
If we follow, if we say we are Christians, we say we're going to ascribe to what he has taught. Well, he has taught us volumes of wonderful information about how to live. But the transforming principle is one of love, both first to him, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then to one another, the world that we find ourselves in. Who is my neighbor? Whoever's next to you, the Good Samaritan teaches us. James, the half-brother of Jesus, even goes further and says, true religion is this, that you look after the widows and orphans and you not be polluted by the ways of the world. You can be in this world, but you don't have to be of it. You don't have to act like they do. Just because it's good business practice doesn't mean it's right. There are some things, Melissa and I were faced with one of those a few weeks ago. Somebody wanted us to do something, but it was against the law, and it was a little thing, and everybody does it. And we thought, okay, it's probably not a big deal. And then we prayed together that night, and we're like, no, it's not going to happen. We can't do that. We are called to be separate. We are called to be light, that the world may see Christ in us, the hope of glory. And instead we said, no, we can't do that, and they got mad, and it was what it was. We need to take care of the people, even if it's at expense of ourselves. Time and again you see that. Jesus looked and said, take care of the least of these. Then he goes on and he presents people, why would you even worry about material possessions? I got it covered. (laughs) I got you covered. You take care of one another. We're told to give generously. We're told to serve one another out of love for Christ. Nehemiah tells us he did it out of a fear of God, out of a love, out of a responsibility, out of an obedience. What about us? My my gut tells me that all of us are probably aware of people that have a need, whether it's an emotional need, a spiritual need, a financial need, a physical need, whatever kind of need it is, we're aware of those around us that we might be able to help. But we're so busy. We just don't have time, right? You'd be amazed at how often I hear that sentence. I'm really busy, maybe next week. And yet people all around us, inside and outside the walls of the church, suffer and don't see the light of Christ because of our busyness and because we miss it. Kevin Spacey said, the ability to change the world through an idea is right up here. He missed it. He said, it's in our brain, now it's in our heart. The ability to change the world has nothing to do with you and I or a great idea because the great idea has already been put before us. Jesus Christ came to seek and save that which was lost. That's the greatest idea of all time. Why shouldn't our lives be living examples of being meek, humble servants of all? I look around this church And most of you have more degrees than I do. And I'm pretty confident you're all way smarter than I am. And I'm also very confident that some of you have tremendous financial resources, while others of you have very little. And when we find ourselves in such a diverse group, if we count the nationalities, I think on average we average 20 to 25 nationalities. Isn't that cool? That's pretty amazing. But in a group like this from all over the world, there are cultural differences. There are physical differences. We don't all look the same. Do you? No. We don't all act the same. We don't all find ourselves at the same point in our spiritual journey either. 
So my question for us today is how can we help one another? And how can we look outside these doors and say, how can I meet a need? How can I follow that example of Nehemiah? You see, Nehemiah listened to the outcry. He paused. I believe he prayed in that. And then he got on it. He didn't just assign a committee. (laughs) He didn't just ask somebody else to do it. He acted. And the Jews did the same thing. When they were presented with the reality of the situation, when did they act? Immediately. I want to leave you with three questions, or a three-part question today. And it's pretty simple. First, I want you to ask yourself, how can I find a brother or sister in need? This week. Sometimes I leave you with very open-ended questions. I want to give you homework this week. So if you need to write it down, I can't put it on the screen, and that's okay. But I want you to ask the simple question, how can I find a brother or sister in need this week? Second, I want you to help them. Don't just say, I know they are in need. Help them. Maybe that means sitting down during tea time and having a conversation with somebody that's really struggling. Maybe you've got a broken relationship with somebody in this room that you know that ministry of reconciliation is for you, but you're afraid to deal with it. But you have no idea the impact that could make on someone else's life if you're obedient. Maybe you've got resources and you know people in need and you can help. Maybe you have contacts that could help people in need and you could help. But just as one of the shares earlier said, how will they know unless we tell them? How will we know their needs unless we listen? We can't listen if we're not investing in relationships one with another and one first with the Lord. So first... Find a brother or sister in need. Second, help them. Third, have you ever read the back of a shampoo bottle? It says, wash, scrub, rinse, and then what? No, it says repeat. (laughs) You ever notice that? Your shampoo tells you to do it more than one time. Wash, rinse, repeat. Okay? In the same way, find a brother or sister in need, help them, then do it again. Repeat. Simple. Big opportunity for us as a church. I don't long for us to be a mega church. I don't long for us to be something we are not. I long for us to be a people of God so committed to following him that we can't help but look around and say, how can I help? What's going on with you? What's going on in your lives? I finish with this story. Not many of you know My sister's had a horrible four years due to circumstances far beyond her control. She ended up divorced, a single mom taking care of three kids, followed by the loss of a job because of that situation. It was just horrible. I'm not able to talk to her very often, but she had to file for bankruptcy. She had to take on responsibilities that should have been her husband's, but he was separated from the family in ways that you don't need to know about. And it was just terribly painful. And it's been hard on her. It's been hard on my parents because she's returned home. At 43 years old, 42 years old, she had to return home. And she lives with her three kids with my parents. And, you know, I got to see my sister for a couple weeks this summer. You don't see poor me and my sister 
you see a woman that's doing the best she can and she has the joy of the Lord as people have come along. And someone in Hong Kong wanted to help. And I was able to take a gift to my sister. And you could see God at work. The person that provided the gift has no idea what my sister looks like. I'm confident of that, unless he's on Facebook. Maybe he is, I don't know. But he met a need he didn't completely know about. And amazingly, God's timing was so perfect because the school she works for now is a small Christian school that due to some expenses hadn't paid their teachers that month. And the money given was more than what she had missed out on her salary. And God had miraculously provided through the obedience of another that didn't even know how it would work out. That's the body of Christ seeing a need and working and acting. And to be able to share that is just a powerful testimony of God at work. Whether it's financial, whether it's time, whether it's the gifts God has given you, can we work together to meet the needs of this world we find ourselves in? Will we wash, rinse, and repeat? Identify a need, help the need, and do it again. Let's pray. Lord, you indeed are a great God. It was a painful lesson for the people of Jerusalem to learn that they had neglected your law. But they repented and they turned and they gave it back. I pray that we would be a people that meet the needs of others around us. That find ways to bear with one another out of love for you. That find the ways to meet needs as you have provided for us, because it's all yours anyway. In your name I pray, amen.